Hebrews, the new and living way, part 56, halfway through the last chapter, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever. You'll see the title, how it bubbles up out of that text. Today, verses 7 through 14. I sure hope you have your Bible in some form or another. Always bring your Bible to church. 13.7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. And that gives you a clue, the kind of false teachings he's thinking about as he writes to these persecuted Jewish believers. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. And these are the hard verses. Ten. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest, he's thinking of all through the Old Testament, the temple, the tabernacle, and then the temple, and the worship of the priests and the sacrifices. That's what he's thinking about. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside outside the camp. That seems an important point to him. Twelve. So Jesus, now he's thinking of Jesus and his death on the cross... So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. So you see, outside the camp, outside the gate. He's making a parallel there. Jesus also suffered outside the gate, outside the city of Jerusalem, outside the gate, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. That's the third time he's done this outside the gate, outside the camp, outside the camp. Let us, that's you, that's me, let us go to him, that's Jesus, outside the camp, and I want to talk about this today, and bear the approach he endured. Like he could say, let us go to him outside the camp and receive his mercy, which would be true. Let us go to him outside the gate and receive his Forgiveness, which would be true. He talks about it in this text. Let us go to him outside the camp and let us bear his reproach. What's that? I want to talk about that. For, apparently, apparently 14 has something to do with 13. Bear his reproach. For, here, it's right, our lives, right here on earth, we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. Let's pray. Help us to sense how precious your word is and help this study to do that. 
through the work of your spirit in our minds and in our hearts. We ought to be changed whenever we gather around your word. It's living and powerful. That's what it says. And so let that power be exercised in our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our writer's continuing his closing reminders to this group of persecuted Hebrew believers. And like any teacher wrapping up, you can sense the pressure. He feels pressed for time in his closing remarks. Most of the instructions get a little quicker, a little shorter, more to the point. And so following the New Testament pattern, you'll see this in virtually all of the epistles, once you get past Acts, virtually all of the epistles, what you usually get is a doctrinal foundation laid and then practical application of that truth. So it's not just moralism, let's be nicer people. And it's not just academic, let's learn this theology. But it's let's, let's see unfold the truth of God's grace and the gospel and then let's apply it to our lives. Hebrews follows basically that same pattern. Point number one. The only leaders worth remembering are the ones who regularly give you the word of God. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I don't know about you, but I find that quite striking. Leaders can be remembered for a lot of things. And our writer doesn't ask these disciples to remember their leaders for their um, brilliance, their cleverness, not even their compassion, their popularity. Their motorbike. The command is to remember word teachers. That's the instruction. Remember leaders who took you into the book. Remember leaders who took you into the text. And and the implication is there's nothing important enough about any leader in and of himself or herself to meet sustained attention. So so leaders ought not to be remembered if they magnify something other than the word of God. And it happens all the time. Leaders ought not to be remembered if they magnify something other than the word. Forget those leaders. You don't have time to be thinking about those kinds of leaders. There might be fondness and excitement, but there will be no spiritual nourishment there. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. He's going to talk about leaders who didn't later in this text, you see. This emphasis was the glowing center of the early church. Let me just give you a couple quick references. They devoted themselves to the... Here's the first thing. Apostles' teaching. To fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Underscore that word. Devoted. 
this, this word focus in the early church, it wasn't just a passing interest. So, so when Luke says they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, he, he means they didn't just naturally have time to do this. They were like you. They were busy. They had other things. He means, he means when he says they devoted themselves, he means they made time for this. They, they became devoted to the word the way a husband becomes devoted to his wife. The way a mother is devoted to her young child. The way a business person is devoted to profitability. They devoted themselves to the word. Do you do that? Not do you pick it up and read it once in a while. Do you pour your soul into it? Devoted. The only difference, of course, those illustrations that I gave, the only difference is the early Christians had to develop this devotion to the word. It's, devoted is a verb. This was a trained devotion. They developed this taste. They were involved in the creation of this love for the word. It's another text. One that's frequently misunderstood, I think. So faith comes from hearing, and, and hearing through the word of Christ. I think this verse is frequently misread. I misread it for years. Let me tell you what it isn't saying. Paul isn't just saying that people develop faith by hearing the word of Christ. I mean, that's there, but that's not quite the punch of the text. He's saying something more profound. He's saying that the capacity to hear itself, the capacity of hearing comes through the word of Christ. He means... He means I can't become a hearing person, hearing God, hearing God's word, knowing God's truth. I can't become a hearing person without the word of Christ. So, so without the word, there will only be deafness in my life to the important realities. Without regular exposure... Without regular exposure to this word, I have, I have no capacity to remove spiritual obtuseness from my heart, and nor do you. And it doesn't hinge on what Bible seminary you went to or what kind of ministry you're in or how long you've been a Christian. Hearing comes from the word. Hearing itself comes from the word. There's actually a passage that describes the process that we've just been looking at. Here's, here's another one. Remember, our text is saying, remember those leaders who spoke to you the word of God. Look at this one. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you, and here, here are the verbs, when you received the word of God. What's that mean? So, so here I am. With ever all my you know shortcomings and inabilities, what we're trying to do here now, I'm sort of proclaiming the word. Me, most of you awake, so so I'm assuming you're receiving it. How do we know? Are you receiving the word? 
that when you receive the word of God, what you heard, this is what anybody can do, you, here's another verb, you accepted it. So, receiving has something to do with, with accepting it. This, oh, what, what this says about me right now is true and I'm not going to argue with it. You accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. And then he says, which is at work in you believers. It's as though Paul is concerned, he's concerned, all of us, that people might not fully uh, grasp what's going on in a gathering like this right now. What's happening? We aren't getting the impact of this time together around the word unless we know Apparently, who's who's speaking to us? Apparently, we can hear the word of God and forget God. Isn't that strange? Hearing God in the word is what it means to receive and accept the word of God. Those are the words Paul uses. And so he says... And he says this, here's how you know if you're receiving it. We're to receive this word as a working word, which is at work. How many came down Gorham Street to church today? You see all the, those yellow, orange construction cones out there. Torn up pavement. You see the heavy machinery parked over there on Crowder. The next time you you get impatient and you feel your tires clunking over those torn up trenches of pavement, just say to yourself, oh, 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 that's what God's word is supposed to be doing in my heart. It's, It's a construction project. That's what God's word is trying to do in my distracted, inattentive, sometimes proud heart. The the biggest construction project, when you drive in here, tell yourself this. It's not on Gorham, it's here. Bring your hard hat to church. Two. The only remembering of the word that counts is a moral remembering. It's in that first verse that we were studying together, 13.7. After he says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word, he says, consider the, consider the outcome of their life. And then he says, imitate their faith. So the verbs are consider and then imitate. Speaking as a local church leader, I can tell you that I think our writer is taking quite a risk in those words. I kind of wish they weren't in the text. See, I can think of parts of my life you would be better off not imitating. And I think our writer knows that. Uh, He knows only Jesus is sinless. He's talked about it in this letter over and over again. He knows Jesus, only Jesus, is really followable in every area of life. But I I still think there's a point in this imitation command. I'm assuming everyone here reads his or her Bible... 
We all have the capacity to kind of learn what it says. And our writer wants us to know that that isn't quite what he means when he talks about accepting and receiving the word. He's not just talking about knowing what it says. That's not what he has in mind. And so you note his instruction to look, look to godly examples, to find areas of visible transformation by the word. We all find it easier, don't we, to be moved by an example of truth rather than recitation of truth. We, we, want, we want to see proof that the instruction works. And so our writer tells his readers to look to find, look to find something beautiful that the word is accomplishing in somebody's life. And then say, is that me? I want that. I want my life to be like that. Your leaders aren't perfect, but look for the fruit of the word in their lives and pray for them where it's lacking. Three, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, and this is both precious and dangerous. Look at eight and nine. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So, the same. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good to the, for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. If you go in any four-square church in the States, um, all those 27 years I went to the pastor's conference at the Church on the Way, and on the front of every church is Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. I don't know, maybe apart from John 3.16, I don't know that there's a better-known slogan from the Bible than that one. If I came here and our, you didn't even know what we were talking about and I just said Jesus Christ is the same, almost everyone in the room could finish the verse. It's on plaques, it's on kitchens, it's in family rooms. And almost always it's quoted all by itself as though it never had a textual context. I think that that phrase sits like... Uh, it sits like the cream in the middle of an Oreo cookie. On the one side, there has just been the command to consider the example of the godly. Okay? And in the rest of the verse will come a warning of false teachers and their false teaching. And so that's the nest in which this lovely little phrase sits. And here's how I think it's meant to work. These persecuted Hebrew Christians, they've just read the list of faith hall of famers in chapter 11. We went through that. And then, right before Jesus Christ, the same, they've just been instructed to study the example of godly leaders. But there's a problem. There's a problem. All of those faith heroes in chapter 11 are dead. Dead and gone. 
and the New Testament apostles are dying off one by one. And there they sit. Where would these persecuted refugee Hebrew Christians be left? So the voices of faith were gradually being silenced by the grave. The examples were all aging. What of their faith? Would it survive? And, and here's the writer's answer. They, these persecuted Hebrew Christians, they have exactly the same Jesus as every other saint, living or dead. That's what he's saying. You have the same Jesus as apostles Paul, Peter, and James. You have the very same Jesus Christ. And he inspired their adoration right up to the gates of martyrdom, all of them. He loves you no less. He is worthy of the same loyalty from you. And your eternal destiny is no less secure. Now, you have to go through some tough life before you feel the, before you feel the preciousness of those words about Jesus just... He's always the same. You can't, you can't lose him in that sense. Jesus Christ doesn't change with personal loss. Jesus Christ doesn't change through sickness. Jesus Christ doesn't change through poverty. Jesus Christ doesn't change through depression. Our feelings about him may change. His feelings for us are unchanging. I think about that. I think about that when I go down and I visit my mom. And she no longer has the capacity to feel the same love for Jesus as she once did. I doubt that she touches her Bible anymore. But she is nonetheless secure in his unchanging love for her. There's a solid beautiful foundation of constancy in everything about our risen, reigning, returning, death-defeating, constantly sympathetic, sin-forgiving Lord. And that's precious beyond telling. He's the same forever. But there's a problem. And it's raised in verse 9. You, well, I, I could change slides. Maybe it's a little neater if I do. Do not be led away by, by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. You can't help but see what our writer is getting at when he uses that word, this one. Diverse. In describing these strange Teachings. The, the Greek word literally means uh, manifold. So think about that. Right on the heels of saying Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is exactly the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right after that, our writer cautions these same Christians against teachings that will be constantly adapting. Teachings that will be constantly morphing. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. Don't be carried away by diverse teachings. Don't be carried away by teachings that will customize themselves to whatever a particular culture wants to hear. Am I making this clear? I uh, sadden when I see the response of a lot, a growing number of professing evangelical churches that now proudly endorse gay pride and same-sex marriage. A good number of evangelical churches in Newmarket. Why do they do that? Well, now I'm straying away from my uh, stuff. So if it seems a little less organized, that's because it is. We're going to look in a little bit at what's called the reproach of Christ. I'm going to wrap up with that. He says, you, you bear the reproach of Christ. And in other places, it's called the offense of the gospel. So there's something about the cross that is, that is offensive. And, and here's what it is. Here's what it was then. Can you imagine? Paul, he wrestles with it in the epistle to the Galatians and in other places. Can you imagine coming to a group of, of people who are devout in their Jewish faith, which came from God, by the way. And they had the commandments, and they kept all of the dietary regulations, and they didn't do anything on the Sabbath, and they said their prayers. Can you imagine suddenly, picture it, someone coming with the gospel who was once a Jewish Pharisee, a leader. Can you imagine someone coming to all of these devout people and saying, I'm sorry, you, God, God will not accept you on those terms. How would you feel? You can see, can't you, how offensive that is? How? And so that's just, that's the New Testament manifestation of the offense of the gospel. But there's dozens of them. You, you have people you know. Here's what's happening in a lot of churches. You have people you know who are, who are gay and they're, and they're good people and they're nice people and you accept them. How dare. How is it possible that I would accept these people as loving and kind and gracious and good and God, God not eternally accept them? How, how dare he be like that? Do you see the offensive part? And so if you hold to the scriptural teaching, the, the name calling starts. Well, you must not, you can't be compassionate. You're not tolerant. You, you don't embrace diversity. And you start to see why churches, churches don't want to bear that kind of reproach in today's culture. Because you'd be branded as unloving. How dare God not accept someone I accept? How dare he? And so our writer says, you're going to have to follow Christ. You're going to have to bear the reproach of Christ. 
who came to the religious leaders and said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. Jesus said that. That's why, they, that's why they killed him. Not because he said love one another. And so, diverse teachings. Don't be led away by diverse teachings. Teachings that morph. Teachings that customize. This is exactly what Paul warned young Timothy about. 2 Timothy 4, 1-4, I charge you. I don't know of any other charge in the scripture like this. Like, look at how he leads into this subject. You can tell this is not a light topic for Paul. When someone is about to give instruction and they start with words like this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, that's what's behind the remarks, (laughs) preach, preach this. Why would you have to charge a minister to do that? He's going to tell you why. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke. Notice how it starts with the negative side. And exhort with complete patience and teaching. Here's why Timothy preached the word. The time is coming when people will not endure. It's unbearable to hear the truth on some of these subjects. I can't endure it. People will not endure teaching but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own... Look at this word. See anything there? And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Look at those stunning words. It's in that fourth verse. They will turn away from the truth. They will wander off into myths. And you have to ask... What would make people do that? What would make people who knew the glory of Jesus, what would make people turn away from that? What would make people just wander away from that? Because that's what's happening. The answer isn't really complicated. Here's what it is. Remember under this point I said the truth about Jesus Christ being the same yesterday, today, and forever is, is precious And I said, dangerous? Here's the dangerous side. It is never easy to keep giving your attention to something that never changes. Am I right? It is the glory and the danger of Jesus that he never changes. We, we take for granted things, even very precious things that are just always exactly the same. Think about it for a minute. What if someone came and told you today, the doors burst open in this sanctuary, someone came in and said this was the last day. This was, this was the very last day you would ever see a Bible in any form ever again. Right now, you will never, ever, in any form, see scripture again. What if someone came in here today and told you this would be the last day, the very last day you would ever gather with another Christian, that you would never see another believer 
again. How precious would this be? For the rest of your life, never bump into one other Christian. What if you were suddenly told that you would never again, not ever, ever, hear the praises of God sung by a large crowd lifting their voices in worship and adoration to the Lord? That from this day until your death, you would be by yourself, and the only praise that would come would be solo. What if you found out today that never again, not even once, not ever, would you hear the voice of another saint praying for you? And yet, and yet, we can so frequently piddle through these precious Christ-centered things, or perhaps stay home if the weather's nice, and, and not even miss any of them. And that's because, well, we just always do them. We've gotten used to them. They're just the same. And it's hard staying excited about a Jesus who is always the same. It's just as hard as it is precious. Four. The kind of false teaching our writer was dealing with. These are the tricky verses in the text, the last part of 9 through 12. Let me catch up. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Oops, what did I do? Um, how do I do this? There, nope. Good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar, us. This is to the, to the New Covenant people. We have an altar, do we? From which those who serve in the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy place, this is by the high priest, the, the, the uh, sacrifice of atonement, brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify people through his own blood. I've got I to condense this. Our writer recaps the theme of all the theological arguments of this entire letter. I'm not going to review them. Everything that the altar was in that old obsolete covenant where all the animals were sacrificed, where the priest and the high priest entered, all the offerings were offered there. Everything that the altar was for that obsolete old covenant, our writer says, Jesus is God's final covenant with mankind. That's what that sentence means in verse 10 where he says, we have an altar from which those who serve in the tent have no right to eat. Think, now, it's not complicated. Think about what this might mean. Imagine what this would mean to these persecuted Hebrew saints being pressed back into their Judaic covenant. And our writer 
boldly claims that, that if they want to place themselves back before that old covenant altar, they will have no participation in the broken body and shed blood of the new covenant sacrifice, Jesus Christ. That's what he means. He is saying Jesus is uncombinable with any other religious system. That's a huge truth. If you want to go back to that altar, you, you can't come to Jesus. Something else. Our writer seems to labor the point that the old covenant animals offered on the Day of Atonement were buried outside the camp when the sacrifice was finished. Why? I mean, I mean, why did God care where these dead animal carcasses after the sacrifice was offered? Why does God care where they're buried? And it's more than just superstition and it's more than just a concern for hygiene. The burial outside the camp was a picture of something really important. It was a symbol. It symbolically pictured the idea that all of the sins of the people, so Aaron would come, bring the animal. You, you, you bring the animal for your sins. I come, and I put my hand on the head of the animal, and it's a picture. Nothing actually happens. It's a picture of your sins, it's your goat, your lamb, are being transferred to that animal. That's the idea. The animal is sacrificed. The animal's blood is shed. Of course, it's all picturing Jesus and his work on the cross. And so now the animal's dead. The sacrifice is finished. Why does it have to be buried outside the camp? Because the sins of the people are in that animal, in the Old Testament symbolism. Animals don't actually carry sin. We, we know that. But God was teaching something through this. So the animal is now officially unclean. Because the sins of the people rest on that animal. And here's the wonderful reality behind that Old Testament symbolism. Our writer tells us a great deal about the atoning death of Jesus Christ and what it accomplished when he says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. This needs to be said all over again. Those, those lovely little songs that those kids sang are carrying a message that is, that is flat out denied by much of the evangelical church. It needs restating today. Jesus suffers outside. Why? Because unlike the animals, that was, it was just symbolism. Jesus actually bore my sin on the cross. That's the reality that all those carcasses being buried outside the camp, that's the reality that, that pointed to. It needs restating. I'm sorry. Jesus didn't just die as a great moral example or the way Brian Zahn and Greg Boyd and others say as a demonstration of God's nonviolent love in the face of injustice. 
He, he bore my actual sin in his body. That's what it teaches. He died as my wrath-bearing substitute. He brought about atonement. And that's what that text is picturing. I'm almost done. Five. This is how I wanted to end this point. Allegiance to Jesus will always bring reproach. And this must be boldly embraced. Allegiance to Jesus will always bring reproach, and this must be boldly embraced. Therefore, let us, let us go to him. And it's the same place. And bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city. We're, we're outsiders here. If you, if you don't get that about following Jesus, then you don't know what following Jesus is. You, following Jesus isn't just enjoying his forgiveness. Following Jesus is bearing his reproach. Just to be clear, there is no reproach whatsoever for admiring and quoting the teaching of Jesus. Every talk show host, every late night host in the world chimes in on the lovely sayings of Jesus when it suits. That's a piece of cake. That's why our text ties the reproach of Jesus, that, to this, being crucified outside the camp. That's the unacceptable concept to all the moral reformers and all the social activists of our culture. The idea that there is sin, God displeasing sin, even in the most appealing of people, is reprehensible in today's world. It is insulting. It is religiously exclusive and hence intolerant. The atonement seems insulting to people straight and gay who seem very nice and loving just as they are. Thank you very much. How dare we say God doesn't accept, except on his terms. If you're following Jesus, the writer says, there, put that reproach in your pocket. You're carrying it around the rest of your life. Fortunately, we have a wonderful example of reproach-bearing. We have it in Jesus. You see that 13th verse? Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, bear the reproach he endured. We studied it. Actually, we studied it earlier in this letter. Let me just show you quick. Here's chapter 12. Let us run with endurance. That's because you have to bear the reproach. Otherwise, endurance, you wouldn't need it. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, here it is, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Think about this. Who endured 
from sinners such hostility against himself. He'd come to the Pharisees and he'd try and correct them and they'd say, we have Abraham as our father. Right? I'm sorry. You have us confused with someone who really needs forgiveness and cleansing. He endured that all through his ministry. People hated that about Jesus. We talk about the things they loved about Jesus. People hated that about Jesus. Here's my closing point. You will never experience reproach for allegiance to Christ like he experienced in being executed like a wicked, cursed criminal. That that the holy God the Son with his pure heart and a degree of righteousness that no one else could even imagine or explain that they took him and, and cursed him in his death. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And treated him like the worst of human beings. We have never seen glory more misunderstood. We have never seen glory more slandered, more hated, treated more wretchedly. And he took all that shame, our text says, and he despised it. He just stomped on it. He pushed it aside and he did it for you. All the shame. He despised it because he wanted to redeem me and he wanted to redeem you. And now, how about you? Do you want to cringe every time someone finds out you're a Christian? Will you demonstrate allegiance to Christ the way he demonstrated allegiance to you? In bearing all that shame? Reproach is going to come. It comes because of your refusal to make this culture. C14, your refusal to make this culture your lasting city. How will you express allegiance to the Lord who took on nothing but shame for you? There's that 13th verse. It's a good wrap-up. Let us go to him outside the camp and let us bear the reproach he endured. There are teachings that will morph to accommodate everything. They're diverse and they're loved. And then there is Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's a preciousness in that, but you can't get away from the reproach. Don't even try. Let's pray together.